Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, before we start today, I want to remind you that there is a website associated with this podcast, wealthformula.com. That's where you go to pick up any of the additional resources that are available to you on that website. There's some free downloads, books, etc. It's also where you sign up to become closer with this community. Uh, you have the uh, Investor Club. If you're an accredited investor, you can certainly sign up for that and see what we've got going on in our Investor Club. And then also, I would urge you to consider, if you're interested in getting closer to this community, uh, the Wealth Formula Network. Now, Wealth Formula Network is a online community, but it also starts with a course with a lot of interesting um, and smart people giving you some of the basics of personal finance. And then it shifts into a community that is on Facebook, but also has biweekly Zoom calls. You can learn all about that at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as for today's show, uh, let me just start out by saying this. Investing is hard enough. Uh, without worrying about all the crooked stuff going on out there. Uh, I mean, you, when you add that to the picture, it's a miracle that most of us, uh, certainly in our group, have, have actually made money investing. I mean, it is, it's, it's kind of crazy how many times you just run into situations where, you know, it ends up being a complete ripoff or somebody's, you know, trying to steal from you or whatever. And if you think the nefarious activity is limited to uh, the private space, you would be mistaken. Uh, you know, big money can manipulate public markets just as easily. And uh, all you have to do is remember the whole story of Enron and the smartest guys in the room. The global financial collapse of 2008, of course, exposed a lot of white-collar criminals. And when the lending markets dried up back then, it was like it was like the story of, you know, the t the tide going out and then seeing all the people who were actually swimming naked, right? All these people who said that they were doing something legitimate, they, were, they had legitimate business models, uh, all got exposed because of that. And of course, uh, in the U.S., we had a front seat to what was happening uh, in our country. Uh, and it all started with the downfall of Lehman Brothers. But credit dried up globally and created chaos throughout the world. And I think, um, you know, we, we don't hear very much about what happened in other countries. And one of the most interesting stories uh, is that of Iceland, of all places. And my guest on Wall Formula podcast today was actually one of the leading investigators into the Icelandic 
financial meltdown, uh, which was pound per pound, probably the biggest financial meltdown in global history. So my guest, Jared Bibler, wrote a book on this topic, and critics have described it as insatiable greed, flamboyant crime, scheming politicians, dishpan clanging housewives. What else could you ask for, right? Anyways, fantastic book and a very interesting story. When we come back, you're going to hear it all from Jared Bibler. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Jared Bibler. He's a graduate of MIT, where he studied engineering. Uh, he's also a CFA chartered charter holder with nearly 20 years of broad experience in the global financial markets. Um, he's got a significant career in uh, global financial markets in Boston, New York, Wall Street. Uh, and then ultimately, Jared uh, moved to Iceland, uh, where he was a banker. In it. And then uh, after becoming a little unhappy with the situation, uh, ended up uh, being a major player in uh, investigating the 2008 Icelandic financial crisis. Jer Jared, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Buck. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jared, you, you know, I uh, I think this is, um, you know, what we were talking offline. I said, well, what, you know, what's interesting about uh, the Finland financial crisis to a United States audience? And I think my conclusion on this is let's take it back to where you started, right? Let's Let's start back in the U.S. and kind of trace your story from going from market to market and understanding some of the differences in what you were seeing. Sure. Yeah, I started out, uh, I was uh, working for one of the biggest Wall Street banks early in my career, uh, but not, not anything glamorous. I was in the back office side, so I was seeing where all the money in the treasury, uh, securities, treasuries, and, and, and stock settlements happened. Uh, we were rebuilding their back office. Uh, so I did that for about five years. So I, I, I saw the inside of Tokyo market and, and the uh, New York bond market, New York stock market, and some stuff in Europe as well. And that job, but that job was just a burnout job. I was there about five years. Uh, 
and I wanted a break. So I thought, and I, I stumbled into a similar job in Iceland in 2004. So I was like, oh, I'll try it for a year, I, th- I thought. Um, and so I went up there and it was, yeah, it was wonderful to, to, to live there. Um, it became really my adopted homeland. But, um, but when I got there, it was the beginning of a, of a real boom. Um, and we had just had the dot-com bust, right? So we just lived through that. That was, that was pretty big. We forget about that now because of 2008. But <laughs> yeah, the yeah. dot-com bust was big, was right? Big. I think it was a 50% drop in the markets or uh-huh. something, right? Uh-huh. It was, yeah. um, and, you know, they, you had a lot of people who had been buying stuff like pets.com famously. Right. Right? A lot of these <laughs> things that went to zero. Sure. Kind of like how... Kind of like how crypto did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Luna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we had just had that in the States. So that was fresh on my mind. And also we had those big accounting scandals like Enron, right? And yeah. the, that book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is still probably my favorite business book of all time, that had just come out when I moved to Iceland. That's the, that's the kind of inside story of Enron and the accounting uh, frauds there. Uh, and so it was all on my mind. And then when I got to Iceland, it was crazy because the stock market was going up 50, 60% a year for, for several years. Um, and what had happened, I mean, Iceland at the time, when I moved there, I think we had 280, 290,000 people, the whole country, but we had these three, like formerly sleepy, uh, savings banks. One of them focused on lending to the agriculture sector. One of them focused on lending to the fishing sector, which is huge in Iceland. Um, but they were just small banks to serve a small population. But they had tapped into global capital markets in the early 2000s. And they were able to, for a few years to, like, to kind of um, borrow as much as they wanted, grow as fast as they wanted. Um, and they kind of took over the stock market. So they, um, the three of them grew so fast that they, um, uh, yeah, so they were doubling in size for, for those years that I got there. And there was so much foreign cash flowing into this very small economy that suddenly there were just private planes everywhere. I mean, the, the place transformed. It had been Europe's poorest country until the Second World War for, for like a thousand years. Very difficult place to live. Uh, and then after the Second World War, with some changes uh, and modernized f- fishing and so on, the country became fairly prosperous. Um, but then this was just, this was what I saw when I moved there was, was, was crazy. The cr- was there like a nose? Because when, when I think of, uh, I, I just spent a little bit of time um, this summer in Scandinavia, and I'm always struck still about generally, you know, it's not a particularly uh, capitalist society, right? It's a pretty, you know, uh, socialist kind of feeling people-wise, and, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in being showy uh, with wealth Mm. and that kind of thing. Mm. And I presume Iceland is the same. I'm curious, like, you know, what, what happened in that regard in Iceland? Because Gosh, I mean, I, I don't think Iceland's famous for being a particularly flashy society with money, right? Well, that's true. It, it hadn't been. But all, but uh, so one thing about the rest of the Nordics is they view Iceland as the Wild West, the, the crazy cousin, cousin in a way, which it is uh, in comparison. Um, and uh, but, but it was, at least for the top echelon, the top bankers and so on, it was very flashy. Oh, okay. So we had a... We had Elton John being flown in for a 50th birthday party of, 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 a, of a senior businessman who was actually later charged and found guilty of uh, some of the crimes that are in the book. Um, but yeah, there, it was absolutely, um, 
nuts. And I had grown up around Boston and I had maybe, you know, I had seen private jets occasionally on the ground at Logan Airport or something. But in Reykjavik, which is kind of the size of a fishing village, you were seeing them, you're seeing a few go over, you know, every afternoon. And I, and I said to my new coworkers, like, what's going on here? And they were like, what? Aren't you from America? Like, don't you guys have private jets? I was like, uh, there's something, you know, very strange here. Uh, so I was, I was a bit uncomfortable initially with like, how are these banks making money and those type of questions. But I got worn down after two years working in this back office software job. I, I thought, why don't I just join them? So I became an asset manager at uh, Lundsbanki, which was the second, second biggest and the oldest, oldest of the banks and the, and the second biggest of the three. Uh, and I was there for a couple of years during the biggest, during the height of the boom. But I, I, we were managing a lot of private client money and also managing money for the pension funds. Uh, I was structuring a hedge fund of funds, private equity investments, so on for these, these type of clients. But even the way that we were handling those clients was, uh, was causing me sleepless nights. You talk, talk uh, a little bit about that um, because yeah. I think that ends up, that ends up sort of uh, you know, helping to answer the question of how this may be relevant um, mm-hmm you know, across the board, globally, well, United States, so. Well, the, let's take it back to the U.S. I mean, the mutual fund industry in the U.S. Is, has, been a, has been a bastion of corruption for, Yeah, know, yeah it's, sure. It's had its, even back in the 19, the roaring 20s, there were scandals in the mutual fund industry where insiders were able to know the, day, the, the closing price and, and sell or buy before the public at, at, at the day before price or the day after price can't remember how it worked but there was you know there was there, there was there was big problems in mutual funds and in tip, typically asset management um everywhere if you're a wealthy person um and you go with it's rife with conflicts of interest um if if you're a wealthy person and you entrust i won't name a bank but let's say you know your bank has an asset management uh branch or arm and you say, okay, you give them a mandate. Okay, I'll give you a million dollars to to manage for me. If that's a captive asset management arm, which is what we were in at Lansbunky, uh, the temptation is to take deals that the bank could not place. Let's say they're in. Let's say they're underwriting some syndicated loans, and they're and they uh, and they're supposed to be they're supposed to sell these to to clients. Anything that um, their external clients don't buy from them. The big temptation is to place that in one of the asset management products. So for your listeners, if you're, uh, these are the type of questions you want to ask as a wealthy uh, person uh, who, who, who is delegating some of that, some of that money to a bank. It, it, in my opinion, this is not financial advice, of course, your lawyers can, but I, I, I would not go to a, an organization that's captive of a larger bank. Someone that has other business interests, someone that's doing other, their own trading for their own book, or someone that's involved in underwriting deals, placing securities, because the temptation is so great to, ha- to, to use your internal uh, asset management arm as a sandbox, a dumping place for stuff that you, stuff that's, you know. And so that, that was some of what was going on. The other thing that, that I was seeing was, you know, if you're a sales guy working in an asset management department and you want to bring in a big fish, you want to bring in a big client, the temptation to give that guy a special price or a break that comes at the expense of your of the existing people in the fund is also huge, right? So sales guy, 
I mean, they're incentive, they're incentivized on how much they bring in each year, each quarter. Right. And, uh, so there were things, uh, in our funds where, uh, they really wanted a big pension fund to come in with, you don't know, uh, in one of our new funds, maybe they, the pension fund would put in, uh, these aren't huge numbers because it's Iceland, but 20, 40 million into the new fund. Uh, but maybe the fund maybe the fund already had current investors of that same size, right? Um, sometimes there were things like, you know, we'll give you last month's price, you know? And so when, when you do that, uh, let's say, let's say, you know, that, the, the fund closed at 110 per share last month. And now we're almost through the next month. It's a monthly entry fund. And now the fund price is looking like it's going to be about 120. So you give that, you get that guy in at 110, right? And he gets an immediate return of almost 10% for the month. Right. 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 So that's a huge incentive for him to come in. Mm-hmm. But who pays for that? That's not a that's not a lossless <laughs> proposition. Who pays for that is all the other investors, right? Because they that comes out of their returns ultimately. They don't, and they and they never they never know, right? They'll never know, right? Exactly. So were were you seeing this kind of? Because again, going back and forth to you know what was unique about the Icelandic um, situation versus you know, your experiences in the U.S., was this just sort of magnified, um, you know, just a lot worse, but sort of the same kind of stuff? I think the same type of, I've never been a fund manager in the U.S., so I can't speak to that, but but I know that these, the incentives are there. And uh, these type of things were easier to see in Iceland because people were a little more naive. The sales guys wouldn't cover their tracks when they did stuff like this. They were very brazen about it. Um, but those type of things do happen. Um and, uh, you know, uh, so the whole book is like this. You, you're going to see kind of the worst examples of financial crime in a small society where it's easy to see them. But those examples apply wherever you are. And so then you get sick of it. So yeah, I got to talk about yeah. that and, and yes. what happens next. Yeah. So I got sick of it. Um, I had some, uh, you know, I, I couldn't sleep. Um, stuff in one particular fund was getting worse and worse. Um, and... Uh, I finally resigned and my last day was October 3rd, 2008, which probably doesn't mean anything to you. It was a Friday, but the next, the next week is famous in Icelandic history because on 6th, 7th and 9th, so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday of the following week, the three banks collapsed. Now, the reason I brought up Enron before is each of those banks was about the size of Enron when it collapsed. And Enron was a famous story, right? Enron was the seventh biggest, seventh largest American company when it collapsed. Now in Iceland, which has one one thousandth the population of the U.S., yeah, we had three Enron collapses in a week. Yeah, so and this that, is a that biggest yeah. uh, biggest collapse in magnitude per capita. Yeah, <laughs> in the history, you guys would have needed three hundred Lehman Brothers collapses <laughs> in two thousand eight to equal what happened there. Oh wow! And it just gutted the country, sir. Sure. Uh, and to my mind, uh, the country hasn't recovered. What did it, uh, what, what happened? Tell us what it looked like. I mean, what well, does it look got, like? So, um, what, what, what happens when you're, you know, when you're, whole, so, so let's talk about the market. The market lost 95% of its value that year. It's because the three banks had become the market. They had grown, they had crowded everything else out. They were so huge. 
in this small market that they made up most of the market cap of the market. So imagine if the imagine if the Nasdaq would lose ninety percent, ninety five. What what that does to your four hundred one ks and and so you know so that was one thing, but what that does to the currency is that um, uh, everyone wants to sell their assets in that country, right? So the currency loses its value quickly against other currencies, right? People want to get rid of the Icelandic krona and they want to buy back their dollars or whatever else, euros, whatever else. So the currency just is in free fall. This also happened in the Asian crisis to the Asian, you know, the Thai baht and these currencies. Uh, the currency goes into free fall. What that means for someone who lives in the country is that the buying power of it isn't what it was. So you have massive inflation if you live in the country, you know, like uh, the, the hard numbers is, you know, in 2007, it was 60 Icelandic krona to one would get you $1. And then during the crash, it went to 200 or something. <laughs> so, so what, what had cost you uh, anything you wanted to buy from the States costs you three, four times as much. So that effectively means you stop buying American cars. In fact, we stopped buying all cars in Iceland. Nobody bought any cars for two years. No jets either, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that went away too. And so that was really devastating. Uh, and we also had, uh, most people in Iceland had inflation indexed mortgages. So let's put that into perspective for you. So this is true in some smaller economies where banks don't, they want, they want to unload their inflation risk onto the borrower. So like in the States right now, if you have 10, you guys have close to 10% inflation, right? Or eight, nine. So, so any bank who made a mortgage or, or car loan, they're losing that eight or 9% because you, you, you have to, you pay back the nominal dollars, not the real dollars. So the banks, that's a, that's a big loss for them. Sure. Absolutely. In Iceland, what they've done because the country's had high inflation for, for, uh, you know, like a hundred years is that, uh, whatever the inflation is, they just tack that on to what you owe them. Wow. <laughs> so, no, so we had you. a mortgage, <laughs> we had a mortgage that was a few hundred thousand and it went up by a few hundred thousand, you know, because, because the currency lost half of its value. Uh, and so the mortgage has doubled basically, I mean, roughly. So it, it was really, really dark. I mean, and we didn't recover. I never recovered that much. It's not like someone comes and hands you that money back later. I mean, you, you just lose your house. You have to walk away, uh, lose your car, uh, lose your pension, retirement savings, and so on. How did you end up uh, in, a, in the position of, of starting and helping to investigate what happened? Well, that was kind of a luck for me because I had quit the bank and I was... I was unemployed then also when all this happened. So I didn't even have a job and I couldn't, I didn't qualify for unemployment because I had, because I had quit. I wasn't fired. The next week, a lot of people got fired because the banks collapsed and they, they laid off a lot of people, but I had to then wait like six months. Anyway, I, I stumbled into a job at the financial regulator. I applied to them right away because I had this wall street experience. Uh, I, I had IT experience from big banks. I had Icelandic experience. I spoke Icelandic by this point. I mean, not like a, not, not like a native, but not bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I said, look, if you need some help digging into this crisis, because the, the feeling on the street, when, when the whole population loses their houses, cars, savings, um, also we were locked out of our savings. So we didn't, couldn't even access some of the cash that we had in the banks. Um, when that happens, people went to the streets. I mean, there was a, 
there were people on the streets in front of the parliament building every day for the whole winter in the dark cold icelandic winter people are out there um demanding and people really felt like they had somehow been screwed like they didn't know exactly how but they knew like something happened and a, a lot of the top executives had left the country as well uh relocated during the crisis uh, like they moved to luxembourg and london and, and so that didn't that didn't look too good to people um and so so I, yeah so i got hired started six months later at the at the regulator and they said uh, we want to see if there's any criminality anything happened in the few days before the crisis you know um and uh it was really stress i mean it was the first day i did, i was really uh, my stomach sank, you know, because I thought, Hey, this is a cool job, but I came in, it was just like an empty desk and a computer and a phone. And they were like, okay, go, to uh, it. go, go investigate. <laughs> and I was like, Shh, where do I start? So, uh -huh. um, I, I again got really lucky because the stock exchange sent us a letter during the, during these months, uh, six months between the, the crash. And when I started the stock exchange had sent a letter to the regulator and they said we noticed in the three days before these banks collapsed some suspicious activity trading and you know in their shares and i had been doing uh trading and settlement uh you know i i thought well i can i can look at this i understand this this is yeah. something i can look at and so uh i mean you get into the story a lot more in the book but but what was crazy about what was in the letter like i didn't believe it uh i thought this is just this is crazy what the what what was in the letter was that for these three days, each bank had been the sole buyer of its own shares on the stock exchange. So Wait, every, sh every, every, sh yeah. <laughs> every share, imagine, uh, I don't know, let's put this in US terms for you. Just imagine, I don't know, what's your favorite company like IBM or I don't know. Imagine if every share, every share on the New York Stock Exchange for one day that traded hands, changed hands, that the buyer was IBM for IBM shares. Okay. <laughs> Imagine. Like, this is not like, this is like a share buyback of like, so you're the right. Whole it's like market. a privatization of a company or it, something, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a buyback of the whole market volume. Okay. So that's, but, and that's the bank. Yeah. Yeah. The bank buying its own shares. Okay. You never tell, like, in a buyback, you, you tell people, I'm going to buy back 5% or whatever. Well, why, why did they do that? Well, um, that was a good question. I was like, well, clearly they were worried. That, clearly they thought that by keeping up the appearance, because even before the banks crashed, the share price didn't move too much, you know? So one of the things for us looking at it as the crash was, was coming was like, we'd look at the stock price and you'd say, okay, yeah, we're down 5% since last month, but, but the bank still has as much market cap as it did you know, two years ago, it's still not in bad shape, you know? And then when the crash happened, the shares went in one day from being worth, I don't know, 90 bucks a share to zero. There was no, you know, normally when a company's in trouble, even look at Lehman Brothers, it takes two years for the price to, to so that by the time the last second to last day comes, you're already lost 90 or 95 percent of the value over the last year i mean it's you know you can really see the companies in trouble um but in this case the companies still had quite a bit of value the three banks and so that was mystifying to everyone who 
worked for the banks and lived through the crisis because it's like, how could we go from one day being looking good and the next day everyone's, the next yeah. day the bank's insolvent, right? So they were sort they, of, were they propping up the market then? Essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, uh-huh. they had, so I looked at these three days and I was like, okay, well, you know, this is clearly a bad, bad look and uh, probably illegal. Um, and, but I couldn't believe the volume was a hundred percent. It's like yeah. every share, yeah. you know? And, and so then I said, okay, well, maybe, they, maybe they started this the week before. So let me get a couple of weeks of trading data, but I wasn't used to being a regulator. I didn't realize I could just took, took me a day to realize I could just call the stock exchange and say, okay, send me the trades for these days. And, and so they did. And, uh, what I saw over two weeks was that it was basically the same. So for that last, you know, th- those hectic weeks before I quit my job, my own bank had been doing this behavior as well as the other two, basically every day. So then I went back, like, I was like, all right, uh, I'll go back a few months, you know, cause I have to see, I want to, I want to see how this, uh, started, you know, when did it start? And so I went back a few months and it was effectively the same. They weren't buying a hundred percent every day, but maybe 70% or <laughs> still huge numbers. Very costly, by the way, very costly. I mean, you, to, buy every, to buy every stock that comes across the market, <laughs> you yeah. have to pay for that. Sure. You know, sure. You have to, you're, pay, you're bailing someone else out. Yeah. We're uh, paying a full. So I eventually went back. I thought I was being really bold. I was like, all right, I'll go back six months. I'll go back to April, 2008. Then I'll find it, you know but it was the same pattern for the six months. So now half a year of 2008, I was like, still, I didn't, you know, this whole process took a few weeks and I didn't believe, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. This investigations were top secret. You know, I couldn't even talk to my wife about it at home. So just in my head, like, um, and so finally I went back like five years and that's when I was able to see the beginning of the pattern. So, effectively from 2004, middle of 2004, uh, about the time I moved to Iceland, they were already doing this with their own shares. And so all the years of the boom, all the years of the doubling in size, the Elton John birthday party, all this stuff was happening. And the background was the banks were ensuring that their stock kept its value. They were ensuring that they were the buyer of the last resort. So they, they never were lending, let, or they were they were they were borrowing money, and and basically yeah, yeah. Buy, buying their own shares. Yeah, they were able because because when you uh, you know when you're a public company and you have decent share performance, then you can go get loans for you know you could lever up ten times, twenty times, right? Um, and so that's what they did do. They had these German banks that would lend them you know, huge, huge, they would do huge bond issues. They, they take, you know, this was, this market abuse, it's okay, it's tiny Iceland, but they were spending billions on their buying their own shares, billions of dollars, you know? Um, and because they were able to buy, for a few years, they had this magic where they were able to borrow from the continent and from Wall Street, large amounts. And then they'd have enough liquidity that that, that, that on the small stock market of Iceland, they could just set the share price where they where they wanted it. I mean, I'm curious when you when you think about that, like, you know, the, these are individuals who are probably pretty bright. Um, a lot of them, at some point, they had to know this was not sustainable. 
Yeah, I think I still think about this. Yeah, I'm curious what. what so what? What's your what's your take on that? Well, but it was sustainable because they've been doing it for five years. Well, five years, yeah, that's <laughs> so true. Four, four years. So I think Bernie uh, Madoff the, was doing it for a, lo- a little bit longer too. Act, so. you, exactly. You know, you can as long as the banks can keep growing, they could keep doing this, and nobody, you know, nobody, nobody was looking out for this. Um, but, but really, it's an incredible story because once I had the trades, the front side of the story. Uh, there was a huge question. It's like, well, yeah, but why didn't anybody see this? Like, where did these shares go? Once they bought them uh, for all this money, how did they, because the shares were never flagged on the balance sheet. They were never shown and the volumes were large. So like in the last, in the last 11 months, the biggest bank, which is called Kuip thing, they bought, um, I think around 23% of all the shares outstanding. So <laughs> as they came across the market, and they spent about a billion U.S. dollars. And they spent another $250 million in Sweden on the same thing because they were listed, dual listed. Um, but that never showed up on their audited financial statement. You know, when you look at the treasury stock, which is where a company holds its own shares, they're not there. And that was the even more intriguing piece of the puzzle. I don't know, maybe I should just leave that for your readers and uh, for your listeners and they can <laughs> give us a hint. <laughs> they can, they can figure out what happened to them. But, um, but that's an even more, uh, l- let me just say that by the end of 2008, every department, every major department in these banks was involved in this activity. But to your original question, they were so siloed. And actually this was so much in the DNA of the bank. They had been doing this for so many years that activity taken to buy and hide their own shares off the balance sheet had become normalized, had become the business model. And a lot, a lot of employees were young people. Um, they had never worked outside. They'd never worked in a different bank. They'd never worked outside of Iceland. And it's kind of a, um, it's, a, uh, it's hierarchical in these banks, as many banks are. And it was kind of like you do what your boss tells you to do. If he tells you to buy these shares, you buy these shares. Um, and so that, so it was, but it's ama- still amazing to me that this went on for so long with, with such large. Insatiable greed, flamboyant crime, scheming politicians, dishpan clanging housewives. Okay, explain the housewives <laughs> for me. Oh, that, well, I already kind of alluded to that. That was um, the people going out in front of the parliament building every oh, day I see. in the winter. I see. Uh, they would bring pots and pans to make noise. And to disrupt the, par- the parliamentarians would have to come out and walk past these people clanging pots and pans. So, uh, so the actual meltdown ultimately ends up presumably then because lending dried up and they could no longer buy their own shares. Is that effectively what was the trigger? Yeah, they could. Well, they couldn't uh, not only buy their own shares, but they they were very reliant on foreign loans, foreign credit lines to to stay. To, to stay afloat day to day, week to week, as many banks are big banks, um, and you know this is the same thing happened to Lehman. They couldn't borrow, they couldn't borrow in the repo market even overnight. Nobody would lend them money just for one night. Uh, and so what what happened? Is, so Lehman collapsed. Actually, now my story that I tell in the book is not popular in Iceland, and I've been told don't come here without a bodyguard. Oh really? Um, yeah, and it's this is not the narrative. Uh, the narrative in Iceland which has been really propped up over the last 10 years, 
uh, and people have forgotten about this. The narrative in Iceland is that Lehman collapsed on September, I think, 17th. And that caused a tidal wave which knocked down our beautiful banks. That's the story. Um, but what really happened is Lehman uh, collapsed, and that did cause a tidal wave. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but banks were just, everyone was worried about lending to, to each right. other. It was right. ma- massive um, pullback in credit. Yeah. Um, and these banks, uh, they were pretty thin already. They were pretty reliant on uh, credit to keep going. Yeah, so they were ultimately killed by by that. Uh, so maybe they're right. They could have kept going and doing this for, well, they probably for another 10 years. Probably, but um. yeah, it kind of, you know, tide goes, <laughs> it goes in, you see who's, who's naked, right? And, that, and I think yeah, they, yeah. that's what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so, um, well, that's uh, that. Well, that's too bad to hear. So, have you been back to Iceland since then? I mean, uh, since oh yeah, this, I, love, yeah. I love Iceland. I haven't, but I haven't been back since the book. Uh, the okay, book came so, out, yeah. Uh, so you haven't in had October. To, I, I haven't. I haven't gone back. But you know, uh, the book is also not popular here in Switzerland. Um, oh, okay. Why? Is I that? mean, people love it. I mean, people love it. It's a page turner. It's fun to read. I guess people tell me. Um, but uh, but in Switzerland, I was at a conference about four weeks ago here. And uh, I got stuck talking to a guy who uh, was a friend of a friend. And I, at, at one point I was trying to get back and I needed some other people I needed to catch up with. So I said to him, uh, we'd been talking about the book and about what happened in Iceland. And I was, I was looking for an, a way out of the conversation. So I said, hey, let's, let's keep in touch. You know, can I, can I look you up on LinkedIn? And I started to look, get out LinkedIn on my phone. And, and he, had his, uh, he had his name tag on his shirt and he had his lapel kind of of his sport coat was kind of cutting, you know, across the tag. And so I could only, I could only read his first name. And, uh, I started to, I said, Oh, your name, you know, so I started typing his name and, uh, um, he, I said, Oh, what's your name? And he actually took his lapel and pulled it across the name tag. And I said, you, what, you don't want uh, me to know your name? I mean, we've, now we've been talking 10 yeah. or 15 minutes, right? Yeah. It's very, never happened to me never happened to me you know you're in a conference and you know yeah i said you don't i said you don't want me to know your name and he said listen i still have to work in this industry wow yeah <laughs> how's it been for you then uh i mean like you know what because you're in switzerland are you in uh are you in finance uh are you in private in the private sector yeah i've been i've, I've been uh, i have my own consulting firm and i've been doing um private consulting work so yeah. that's been okay yeah, yeah so you haven't really had to rely on but i haven't you know i haven't like yeah well we'll see um i think the i think the book the, the notoriety and the positive effects of the book outweigh the you know outweigh the uh, the other thing but it is really interesting to see how like another person who's uh, really senior is a managing director in in uh, one of the biggest swiss banks he told me that he said, Jared, you, you weren't writing about Iceland at all. This book is about Switzerland, you know? And then, uh, I did a, some interviews last autumn with crypto guys. Right. And they said, no, 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 this book is about crypto. Yeah. As, the story is, the story is universal. Yeah. Right. That's and right. as you read it, as you read it, you'll see that it's not, um, it, it's really not about Iceland at all. I was, it's Iceland is a kind of a Petri dish. It's a small society. It's a place you can kind of easily see these things. Um, but everything that's in there is, is, is applicable to the States or to, to wherever else. Yeah. Fascinating. So the book again, uh, the book is called Iceland secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con. 
And I presume, uh, Jared, that this is available uh, everywhere. I mean, Amazon, everywhere. all yeah. the Amazon uh, usual outlets. Yeah. Is there an Audible yeah. book? Yes, I did the I did. That's why I have this nice mic. I did the uh, oh, I did gosh. the Audible myself. Well, I'm glad you read it yourself too. I, I always <laughs> yeah, think that's, that's much more effective uh, for Audible audiences. Fantastic. And um, if we want to learn more about you, you have a website. Iceland Secret. Actually, I need to make uh, my own author site, but IcelandSecret.com is the site for the book, and there's some info about me on there as well. Fantastic. Well, Jared, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a really entertaining conversation, and we'd love to have you back uh, maybe when you write your next book. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I, th I found that to be a very interesting story, and Jared's a very good storyteller, so it was, uh, was kind of nice. And one of the things that uh, Jared said that I thought was kind of relevant uh, right now for us is that in Iceland, because they've had you know many years of high inflation, they actually add inflation numbers to the mortgages so that if you have a certain interest rate, you actually have to tack on the inflation for that year as well. Uh, that is kind of crazy because in what well, is crazy, it makes sense, I guess. But the, here's the thing. In the U.S., that is one of the great advantages of debt, right? I mean, you hear a lot of, you know, pundits and people tell you how, how terrible and bad debt is. But if it's good debt, like a mortgage or something like that, effectively what happens, if you think about this, is that debtors end up essentially almost like printing money, right? Because you borrow money at a certain percentage and inflation, when it happens, will actually uh, make that debt worth less money over time, right? So if you had a, you know, if you borrowed $50,000, um, you know, 50 years ago, uh, you know, that that is going to be worth a lot less now than it was 50 years ago, right? So that's one of the advantages in the American system to remember that we can uh, continue to take advantage of, especially now. I mean, if you think about it, you got people who are in, you know, mortgages, and I know I have one mortgage on, on a house, it's like 2.7%, very low. And in the meantime, we had inflation, you know, going up to like eight, nine, 10%. So, I mean, that is a, a huge advantage and starts to dilute the amount of debt that you actually have. Another great little, uh, just a great little trick for those of us interested in the uh, mathematics, personal finance. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.